Hello and welcome to another episode of the Symphony Podcast. My name is Bernardo Miete and with me as always is... Andrew Owen. Alright, and today we're going to be talking about uh, Mozart and we're going to continue um, the classical period, um, you know, progression that we've been going through for the couple couple weeks. Alright, so, um, so of course we're going to talk about Mozart and his life. So, Mo- um, uh, Andrew, what can, what can you tell us about Mozart? Mozart was a composer. He's a well-known composer. He's a composer whose name is often mispronounced by English speakers who don't know the Z has a T-S yeah. sound. And that's okay. Uh, you know, we, we love those people no less. Uh, teaching music appreciation, as long as I have at least a quarter of my students consistently called him Mozart. But it, but it is Mozart with a T-S sound. So um, to talk about Mozart, it's important to talk about where he's from, what he's doing with his life. and how he can do anything with his life, what what his context is. So so Central Europe, which is basically where he's from, uh, in the mid-18th century was going through a period of transition. Uh, The remnants of the Holy Roman Empire had divided into a lot of these small um, self-governing principalities. Uh, If you think of Italy before the Risorgimento, it's sort of like that, just a bunch of small self-governing principalities. Uh, the result was competing rivalries between these municipalities for identity and recognition. Uh, <coughs> nationalism is a big deal. Mm-hmm. And people can be so nationalist despite the fact that everybody's basically related. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> political leadership of small city-states like Salzburg and Vienna and Prague uh, was in the hands of the aristocracy and their wealth would commission artists and musicians to amuse, inspire, all the stuff. So yeah, they, um, as we've talked about before, music in this era was very much designed to uh, to entertain or really just to delight. Mm-hmm. So the small city-state of Salzburg uh, would be the birthplace of one of the most talented and prodigious musical composers of all time. And we're talking when we say prodigious, we mean prodigious. This guy yeah. was writing music basically out of the womb. <laughs> he. He did a lot of work very early on, and a lot of it has to do with his education. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was he was taught pretty much everything by his, his, uh, father. By yeah. his father, and uh, just had this really, really difficult thing that he triumphed through, and through all of his traveling as a kid, picked up all these languages. Just an outstanding young mind. Yeah, very smart person for sure. So uh, Mozart, uh, he was, or Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, of course, he was the sole surviving son of Leopold and Maria Perl, um, Pearl Mozart. Um, Leopold was a successful composer, of course, violinist, and assistant concertmaster at the Salzburg court. Uh, Wolfgang's mother, Anna Ma- Maria Pedel, um, was born to a middle-class family of local community leaders. Uh, his only sister was Maria Anna, nicknamed Nannerl, um, and she's also a, a you know a famous, important musical figure of the time. But of course, she was a woman, so she's kind of forgotten a little bit. But um, I've you know there was. Um, an article a couple months ago about about how good she was about how good she really was and and you know some people think that she might have been even even better than Mozart given the chance of course if only she didn't have that uterus <laughs> so with their father's encouragement and guidance they both were introduced to music at an early age like you said uh, Leopold uh, uh, started Nannerl on keyboard when she was seven uh, as three-year-old Wolfgang looked on uh, mimicking her playing uh, Wolfgang quickly began to show a strong understanding of chords, tonality, and tempo. Soon, he too was being tutored by his father, of course. So, so Wolfgang was the kind of guy who could just pick up things at 
just hearing yeah. things. Languages, mm -hmm. uh, music, didn't matter. Mm -hmm. uh, just an extraordinary mind soaked everything up. Mm -hmm. uh, sort of, you know, despite the fact that he's able to focus tremendously on music making, he also, his mind could drift really quickly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so his father, Leopold, was a devoted and task-oriented teacher, both uh, Nannerl and Wolfi. Uh, he made the lessons very fun, of course, but he also insisted on strong work ethic, and he insisted on striving towards perfection. Mm -hmm. That's what uh, the expectation was. So, so fortunately, both children did pretty well in those areas. Uh, recognizing their special talents, Leopold devoted most of his time to their education in music, as well as other subjects. Uh, Wolfi soon shown sign. Uh, I say Wolfi. I think that's perfect. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he, he soon showed signs of excelling beyond his father's teachings with an early composition at the age of five uh, and demonstrating an outstanding ability on the clarinet and the violin. And I, you know, I, I squeak on the clarinet very easily. And, well, this guy, let me tell you, yeah. didn't squeak so much yeah. at, the, at the age of five, mind mm -hmm. um, So in 1762, Wolfgang's father took Nannerl, uh, now age 11, and Wolfgang, age six, to the court of Bavaria in Munich in what was to become the first of several European tours. The siblings traveled to the courts of Paris, London, The Hague and Zurich performing as child prodigies. Uh, Wolfgang met a number of accomplished musicians and became familiar with their works. Uh, particularly important was the meeting with uh, Johann Christian Bach, um, of course, um, the, you know, J.S. Bach, youngest son, son um, in London, who was a strong influence on Wolfgang. The tours were long and often uh, arduous traveling in primitive conditions and waiting uh, for invitations and reimbursements from the nobility. Frequently, Wolfgang and other members of his family felt seriously ill and had to limit their performance schedule. I mean, of course, back then you had to travel, you know, in carriage and all that. It wasn't as easy as it is today. Oh, yeah. To be fair, it is still pretty hard. Yeah. <laughs> to back then, it was way harder. Yeah. But, you know, you could, you could cover a lot more ground between things, you know. Instead mm -hmm. of getting on a plane, you could just sort of get on the back of a horse and... Mm -hmm. Uh, things weren't so good, I guess. So in December of 1769, Wolfi, then age 13, and his father departed from Salzburg for Italy. Mm -hmm. uh, Salzburg, again, being his birth home and the home of one of the finest salt mines in the world. <laughs> uh, so he left his mother and his sister there at home. It seems that by this time, Nannerl's uh, professional music career was over. She was nearing marriageable age, and according to the custom of the time, she was no longer really uh, allowed to show her artistic talent in public. Mm -hmm. um, I guess it's fine for private shows and, and whatever. But anyway, the Italian outing was longer than the others. It lasted from 69 to 71, uh, as Leopold wanted to display his son's abilities as a performer and, the com and, and a composer uh, to as many new audiences as possible. Uh, so this is uh, around the time that he is, uh, that Wolfi is in Rome. Wolfgang is in Rome, and, and that's, this is where he hears Gregorio Allegri's Miserere uh, performed once in the Sistine Chapel. He sat in there, listened to it, uh, sung all the way through. Mm -hmm. uh, later on that night, he wrote out the entire score from memory, returning only to correct a few minor errors, uh, which is understandable. It has a lot of words. I mean, it's honestly a huge paragraph of text. <laughs> uh, during this time, Wolfgang also wrote a new opera, Mitridate, Re di Ponto, for the court of uh, Milan. Other commissions followed, and in subsequent trips to Italy, Wolfgang wrote two other operas, Ascanio in Alba in 1771 and Lucio Silla uh, in 1772. 
And it is pretty amazing that this little kid wrote out the Miserere uh, at the age of 13. Mm -hmm. At the age of 13, I could not transcribe the entirety of uh, Gregorio Allegri's Miserere from start to finish mm -hmm. from one listen. From, yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, he was able to do it. To be fair, the piece is very repetitive. It's not like it's uh, that difficult to put through. The challenge of it's putting the new words with it. It's a strophic piece. Mm -hmm. um, it has the same music with different words over and over again and lots of chant. Mm -hmm. uh, so once you know the words, you can sort of put it with, he, he was able to remember what the chords were and put them together. You know, I, I figure it's not exactly as impossible as it sounds. I think it's pretty doable. <laughs> it's still pretty impressive. <laughs> For 13, I guess yeah, sure. it's all right. <laughs> <laughs> so Wolfgang and his father returned from uh, their last day in Italy in March of 1773. His father's uh, benefactor, Archbishop von uh, Schattenbach, uh, had died and was uh, succeeded by uh, Hieronymus von Colerado. Sorry, Colerado. Um, upon their return, uh, the new Archbishop appointed young Mozart as assistant concert, concert master uh, with a small salary. During this time, young Mozart had the opportunity to work in several different musical genres, comp uh, composing symphonies, string quartets, sonatas, and serenade, serenades, and also a few operas. Sorry. Uh, he developed a passion for violin concertos, producing what came to be uh, the only five he wrote. In 1776, uh, he turned his efforts towards piano concertos, culminating in the piano concerto number no. 9 in E-flat major in early 1777. Uh, and this is when uh, Wolfgang had just turned 21. So, you know, pretty impressive. Look, look, if a giant world superpower decides to declare its independence from England, surely... <laughs> Mozart should write a piano concerto, so 1776, mm -hmm. pretty fun year. Uh, and Hieronymus uh, uh, von Colorado, he's a, uh, he and Mozart didn't get along very yeah. well because mm -hmm. Mozart was pretty um, flighty. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> he said funny things. He called him names. Mm -hmm. uh, some, if you were to translate it literally, I think Arch Booby is what Mozart would call. <laughs> anyway, uh, despite the despite his success with his compositions, Wolfgang Mozart was growing discontent with his position as assistant concertmaster in the confining environment of Salzburg. He was ambitious. Uh, he believed he could do more somewhere else, obviously. So Archbishop von Colorado was becoming impatient with the young geniuses complaining and immature attitude and the name-calling mm -hmm. and the occasional poop jokes. Mm -hmm. So in August of 1777, Mozart set out on a trip to find more prosperous employment. Uh, the Archbishop wouldn't give Leopold uh, permission to travel, so Anna Maria accompanied Wolfgang on his quest to the cities of Mannheim, Paris, and Munich. Uh, as you can remember from the last podcast, the uh, last two podcasts, mm -hmm. I'm talking about Mannheim, it's kind of a big deal. Mm -hmm. Mozart's visit there kind of really gets this whole classical uh, Enlightenment Gallant style going mm -hmm. in the, the symphony. Uh, is he spent some time in Paris and also in Munich. So there were several employment positions that initially proved promising, but all eventually fell through. It seems as if Mozart didn't really stick to things very well. So he began to run out of funds and had to uh, pawn several valuable personal items to pay traveling and living expenses. He wasn't that good at budgeting either. Mm -hmm. So the lowest point of the trip was when his mother fell ill and died on July 3 of 1778. After hearing the news of his wife's death, Leopold negotiated a better post for his son as court organist in Salzburg, and Wolfgang returned soon after, back to daddy. Mm -hmm. Back to Colorado. <laughs> oh, yes. So, uh, back in Salzburg in 1779, um, Wolfgang produced a series of church works, including the Coronation Mass. Um, he also composed another opera for Munich, uh, Idio, Idiominio, 
1781. So uh, Mozart was summoned to Vienna by Archbishop von Colorado, who was attending the accession of Joseph II to the Austrian throne. Um, the Archbishop's cool reception toward Mozart offended him. Uh, he was treated uh, as a mere servant, um, quartered with the um, with the help and forbidden from performing uh, before the emperor for uh, for a fee equal to half his yearly salary in Salzburg. Um, a quarrel ensued, and Mozart offered uh, offered to resign his post. The Archbishop refused at first, but then relented um, with an abrupt dismissal and physical removal from the Archbishop's uh, presence. Um, Mozart decided to settle in Vienna as a freelance performer and composer, and for a time live with friends uh, at the home of uh, Fridolin Weber. Right. Uh, so, so after this point, Wolfgang Mozart quickly found work in Vienna. He took on lots of pupils, he started writing music for publication, and he played in several concerts. He also began uh, writing an opera, a very well-known one, called Die Entführung aus dem Israel, The Abduction from the Seraglio. Uh, or the abduction from, uh, what do you call it, the, the sex restaurant. <laughs> in, the, in the summer of 1781, it was rumored that Mozart was contemplating marriage to Fridolin uh, Weber's daughter, Constanze. Uh, knowing his father would disapprove of the marriage and the interruption in his career, young Mozart quickly wrote his father denying any idea of marriage. <laughs> but by December, he was asking for his father's blessing. Uh, Constanze was uh, pretty much just like Mozart in terms of work ethic and... Um, and I don't know if she had the same taste for poop jokes, but uh, if, if that one surviving photograph of her that we do have somehow is any indication, I'm sure she probably enjoyed poop jokes or something. Anyway, while it's known that Leopold disapproved, what is not known is the discussion between father and son as Leopold's letters were said to be destroyed by Constanze. Mm -hmm. However, later correspondence from Wolfgang indicated that he and his father disagreed considerably on the matter. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult when you... When it's like... Basically, what Leopold tried to do with uh, Wolfgang was, was castrate him without making him a, a, a castrato. You know, he, was, <laughs> he wanted to go out in the world and be a musician and nothing else. Mm -hmm. But Mozart was in love with Constanza, and the marriage was being strongly encouraged by her mother. Uh, you know, this, she was a delight, and I'm pretty sure she appears on a movie Amadeus, mm -hmm. uh, the mother of Constanza. Mm -hmm. It's uh, been a while since I've seen it. Apparently, the, the director of that, or the writer of that, just yeah, he just died. died. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, heard about that on the Facebook. So, mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, he was in love with her. Uh, so in some sense, he did feel committed to the whole proposition. So the couple was finally married on August 4 of 1782. In the meantime, Leopold did finally consent to the marriage. Um, things are a little different nowadays, at least outside of the South. Uh, Constanze and Wolfgang had six children, though only two survived infancy, uh, uh, Karl, Thomas, and Franz Zephyr. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, guess, uh, I guess that's how you pronounce it, mm -hmm. Safa. <laughs> um, uh, 1782 turned to 1783, uh, Wolfgang um, became enthralled with the work of uh, J.S. Bach and also uh, George Friedrich Handel. And this, in turn, resulted in several compositions in the Baroque style and influenced much of his later compositions, such as passages in the Magic Flute and uh, the finale of the Symphony No. 41, which we're going to be talking about later. Uh, during this time, Mozart met uh, Joseph Haydn, and the two composers became admiring friends. Uh, when Haydn visited Vienna, uh, they sometimes performed impromptu concerts with string quartets, and between 1782 and 1785, Mozart wrote six quartets dedicated, dedicated to, to Haydn. We talked about this last last time and of course these are some of the the these string quartets that are very strange for the time they sound they sound very dissonant and um, Haydn loved these string quartets 
Oh yeah, I mean, look, if, if any of us had met Haydn, we also would have written six string quartets. It's just a, a natural course of meeting the guy. <laughs> and I did look it up. It is Franz Xava. Xava. Uh, Xava. I love <laughs> it. That's how you pronounce Z. X A V. Anyway, um, so yeah. So this leads us to Mozart's European fame, that opera, uh, the abduction from the seraglio or the abduction from the uh, serail, or however you want to refer to a brothel. Well, it's a special kind of brothel. Mm -hmm. It's really a, a harem. Harem's a better word. <laughs> uh, the opera, Die Entführung, enjoyed immediate and continuing success and did bolster uh, Wolfgang Mozart's name and talent throughout Europe. Um, with the, with the substantial returns from the concerts and the publishing, he and Constanze enjoyed a lavish lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Again, both really bad at budgeting. Definitely. They lived in one of the more exclusive apartment buildings of Vienna, sent their son Karl Thomas to an expensive boarding school, mm -hmm. kept servants, mm -hmm. maintained a busy social life. Mm -hmm. In 1783, Mozart and Constanze traveled, Salz uh, traveled, Salzburg to visit, traveled to Salzburg to visit his father and sister. Uh, the visit was somewhat cool, as uh, Leopold was still a reluctant father-in-law, mm -hmm. and Nanorl was a dutiful daughter mm -hmm. uh, and was aligned very closely to Leopold and his decisions. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but this day did promote uh, Mozart to uh, begin uh, writing a mass in C minor, of which only the first two sections, the Kyrie and the Gloria, were completed. Mm -hmm. In 1784, Mozart became a Freemason. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, the fraternal order focused on um, Enlightenment ideals and moral uprightness, mm -hmm. uh, fraternal friendship. Uh, he, he became a Freemason and, and talked uh, Haydn into also joining the fraternity. Uh, Mozart was uh, well regarded in the, in the Masonic community. He attended meetings regularly, or as they're called, communications, and being involved in various functions uh, throughout. Uh, and of course, um, Freemasonry also became a strong influence in Mozart's music. Yeah. We have about an hour of music that Mozart wrote for the Masonic Lodge. Mm -hmm. Uh, for opening the meeting, closing the meeting, to celebrate uh, the uh, you know a new officer's election. I mean, just a tremendous. He just a really long piece uh, for Masonic funerals, mm -hmm. uh, which if you ever watch uh, a funeral for a Mason, you'll see already a, a really complicated and interesting ceremony. But you'll also, if if they happen to be a fan of Mozart, you might just hear that lovely piece for orchestra, mm -hmm. uh, the Mauer Trauer music, for the sad Mason, <laughs> the sad Mason music. Yeah. Um, from 1782 to 1785, uh, Mozart uh, divided his time between self-produced concerts as soloist, uh, presenting three to four new piano con concertos in each season. Uh, also, uh, theater space for rent in Vienna was uh, sometimes hard to come by, so Mozart booked himself in unconventional venues, such as, as large rooms in apartment buildings and ballrooms of ex expensive uh, or of expensive restaurants. Um, uh, the year 1784 proved the most uh, prolific in Mozart's perf uh, performance life. Uh, during one five-week period, he appeared in 22 concerts, including five he produced and performed as, as a soloist. In a typical concert, um, he would play as a selection of existing and improvisational pieces and his, vario his, his various uh, piano con concertos. Uh, other times, he would uh, conduct performances of his symphonies, um, and uh, the concerts were very well attended as Mozart enjoyed a unique connection um, with the audiences who were, in the words of Mozart's biographer Maynard Solomon, uh, quote, given the opportunity of witnessing the transformation and perfection of a major musical genre, unquote. Uh, during this time, Mozart also began to uh, keep a catalog of his own music, perhaps indicating an awareness of his place in musical history. So that's also or at least an obsession with making lists. Of course. Okay. <laughs> 
these, these things happen. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm a United Methodist, and the Methodist movement was begun by John Wesley, a man who pretty much everything he wrote was in a numbered list. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, some people just really like to put things in, in numerical order. <laughs> it's just a, sort of a wacky tendency some people have. Mm -hmm. so, so by the mid-1780s, Wolfgang and Constanze Mozart's extravagant lifestyle was beginning to take its toll. Uh, despite his success as a pianist and as a composer, Wolfgang Mozart was falling into serious financial difficulties. Mozart associated himself with aristocratic Europeans and felt he should live like one. Um, that, that happens to anybody. It's so important to have lots of poor friends. That's such a good idea. Um, if, if you have a few hapless friends, you think, maybe, maybe I don't need the, the $500 shoes, but can settle for the $300 shoes. Uh, he figured that the best way to attain a more stable and lucrative income would be through court appointment. However, this wouldn't be easy with the court's musical preference bent toward Italian composers and the influence of Kapellmeister Antonio Salieri, of course, the, the man who famously murdered Mozart uh, using <laughs> a, a special cocktail of poisons and, uh, <laughs> and, and requiem uh, <laughs> uh, commissioning. But no... Uh, Salieri. The, the only reason anyone knows who Salieri is, other than the movie Amadeus, is the fact that he did teach Franz Liszt counterpoint. We've talked about him. That's, that's not true. I mean, he did actually teach him counterpoint, but that's not why people know him. In any case, uh, he was there. Uh, Mozart's relationship with Salieri had been the subject of speculation uh, and legend for quite some time. Uh, has, has still, still is, of course. Uh, letters written between Mozart and his father Leopold indicate that the two felt sort of a rivalry and a mistrust for... Uh, uh, Italian musicians in general, and Salieri in particular. Uh, that is, you know, you get all these foreigners in here from <laughs> sa from the south. They come in trying to take our jobs. And it's, 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 what I'm saying is that Mozart, uh, Wolfgang, and Leopold both um, were violently uh, racist. So, so decades after Mozart's death, a rumor spread that Salieri had poisoned him. So this is. Uh, slightly earlier than the rumor that slightly earlier than the movie Amadeus in 1984. Uh, of course, Peter Schaefer, rest in peace. So, um, uh, so, but but in truth, there was no basis for the speculation. I mean, he couldn't have poisoned him any more than Constanza poisoned him. Uh, you know, you never know what you know what could happen in a marriage. And good Lord. In any case. Uh, Though both composers were often in contention for the same job and for public attention, there is little evidence that their relationship was anything beyond a, a typical professional rivalry, uh, no different than uh, the LSU Tigers and the Alabama, um, what are they, Crimson Tide? Yes. Crimson Tide. Something that changes what we are. Something. <laughs> In any case, yeah, there was a typical professional rivalry. So uh, both admired each other's work and at one point even collaborated on a cantata for voice and piano called Per la Recuperate Salute di Ophelia. Uh, so yeah, I mean, they, they worked together, they were pretty chill. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So toward the end of 1785, Mozart met the librettist Lorenzo da Ponte, a Venetian composer and poet, and together they collaborated on the opera uh, The Marriage of Figure. Uh, it received a successful premiere in Vienna in 1786 and was even more warmly received in Prague later that year. Um, this uh, triumph led to a second collaboration with Da Ponte uh, on the opera Don Giovanni, which premiered in 1787, uh, to high acclaim in Prague. Uh, noted for their, uh, their musical complexity, the two operas are among Mozart's most important works and are uh, main, mainstays in operatic repertoire today. Uh, both compositions feature uh, the wicked nobleman, uh, though Figaro is presented more in comedy and, um, and, and portrays a strong social tension. 
Perhaps the central achievement of both operas lies in the ensembles uh, with their close link between music and dramatic meaning. And yes, of course, I mean, the way that he writes, you know, this ensemble um, music is really, really awesome, you know. Uh, having each character portraying their own their own you know personality in music and they're all singing at the same time all these kind of things that are really impressive um and this is you know why mozart is still remember of course yeah i think a lot of mozart's operas have wicked noblemen i mean look at um the one i mentioned earlier the uh, the abduction from the seraglio osman who who's a bass is, is the bad guy and he's uh he's sort of the, the guard for this kind of thing. Anyway, uh, it, that, that opera is best known for having the lowest note in the operatic repertoire. It's in Guinness Book of World Records for it. Osman sings a low D. It's really very entertaining when it happens. And he does it on an oog owl, which I don't understand why Mozart did. Any case, uh, so yes, uh, Marriage Figaro, Don Giovanni, both very often done in, modern, in the modern world. So in December of 1787, Emperor Joseph II appointed Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart as his chamber composer. And we're not talking about the bathroom, we're talking about a place where he is uh, composing regularly, a post that had opened up with the death of Gluck. Uh, Gluck, best known for writing uh, an Orpheus uh, opera and big opera reformer. Uh, the gesture was as much an honor bestowed on Mozart as it was an incentive to keep the esteemed composer from leaving Vienna for greener pastures. It was a uh, part-time appointment with, appointment with low pay, but it required Mozart only to compose dances for the annual balls. The modest income was a welcome windfall for Mozart, who was struggling with debt. Uh, with debt provided him uh, this appointment also provided him with the freedom to explore more of his personal musical ambitions, which uh, more involved occupations would not have allowed him. Toward the end of 1780s, to, toward the end of the 1780s, uh, Mozart's fortunes began to grow worse. Uh, he was performing less, and his income shrank. Um, Austria was at war, and both uh, the affluence of the nation and the ability of the aristocracy to support the arts had declined. Uh, by mid 1788, uh, Mozart moved his family from central Vienna to the suburb of Alsergrund. Um, for what would seem to be a way of reducing living costs. But in reality, his family expenses remained high and the new dwelling only uh, provided uh, more room. Uh, Mozart began to borrow money from friends, uh, though he was almost always able to promptly repay when a commission or concert came his way. Uh, during uh, this time, he wrote uh, his last three symphonies and the last uh, of the three Da Ponte operas, Cosi Fantute, which premiered in 1790, um, also during uh, during this time, Mozart ventured long distances from Vienna to Leipzig, Berlin, and Frankfurt, and other German cities, hoping to receive his once great success and the family's financial situation, but did neither. Uh, the two-year period uh, of 1788 and, or, and 1789 was a low point of Mozart, experiencing in his own words, uh, quote, black thoughts, unquote, and deep depression. Uh, historians believe he might have had some form of bipolar disorder, uh, which might explain the periods of hysteria coupled with spells of um, hectic crea creativity. Of course, we've talked about this before, right? You know, um, about diagnosing <laughs> some... Posthumous diagnosis yeah. is always a bad idea. Yeah. Uh, and it, it's, it's convenient, because yeah. it's too convenient. It's a, you know... Yeah, it's too easy. Uh, it's just one of those things, you know your conclusion, so you look for evidence that finds it. It's, it's a really bad, yeah. uh, logical way to go. Mm -hmm. uh, 
I mean, you can do it to people who are living. You can go back and forth with mm -hmm. them for a little while and figure things out. Mm -hmm. But someone who is dead, it's all in your mind. Yeah. So between 1790 and 91, uh, Mozart is in his mid-30s now, or as most people know, is sort of his last time here on Earth. Is sort of he, he dies very early. He went through a period of great musical productivity and uh, a lot of healing. So some of his most admired works, uh, the Magic Flute, or Die Zabafluta, uh, the, the final piano concerto in B-flat, the uh, clarinet concerto in A major, the unfinished Requiem, uh, all of these pieces were written during this time, as well as several others. Uh, Mozart was able to revive much of his public notoriety with repeated performances of his works. His financial situation began to improve as wealthy patrons in Hungary and Amsterdam pledged annuities in return for occasional compositions. You know, if, if I had a list of composers to pick from, why not Mozart to write something for you? Okay, sure. So from this turn of fortune, uh, he was able to pay off many of his debts, yeah. thankfully. So that he has uh, not great at for budgeting. He's really good at taking care of debts okay, after yeah. the fact. Yeah. yeah, however, during this time, both uh, Mozart's mental and physical health was deteriorating. In September of 1791, he was in Prague for the premiere of the opera La Clemenza di Tito, which he was commissioned to produce for the coronation of Leopold II as King of Bohemia. Uh, Mozart uh, recovered briefly to conduct the Prague premiere of the Magic Flute, but fell deeper into illness in November and was confined to bed. Constanza and her sister Sophie uh, came to his side to help nurse him back to health, but Mozart was, was uh, mentally preoccupied with finishing, with finishing the Requiem, and their efforts were in vain. Salieri! Okay, so, <laughs> so Wolfgang Mozart died on... Uh, died. He, 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 by the way, he is dead. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, he's, like, like most of the composers we've discussed, uh, now no longer with us. <laughs> he died at the age of 35 on December 5 of 1791. The cause of his death is uncertain, uh, but we are pretty sure that Salieri poisoned the mess out of him. That's not true. Still not true. Uh, <laughs> we, we don't really have a really good sense of post-mortem diagnosis, especially after you're buried randomly like he was. So yeah. uh, officially, the record lists the cause as severe uh, miliary fever. Uh, referring to a skin rash that looks like millet seeds. I tell you, they were real, real sophisticated medicine back then. Um, since then, many hypotheses have circulated regarding Mozart's death. Some have attributed it to uh, rheumatic fever, a disease he suffered from repeatedly throughout his life. It was reported that his funeral drew few mourners and that he was buried in a common grave. Both actions uh, were the Viennese custom at the time. Um, only aristocrats and nobility enjoyed public mourning and were allowed to be buried in marked graves. I mean, that's just common sense. You don't want to fill the city with a bunch of people who aren't important, uh, like Mozart. So, however, his memorial services and concerts in Vienna and Prague were well attended. After his death, Constanza sold many of his unpublished manuscripts to undoubtedly pay off the family's large debts. Uh, he, uh, she was able to obtain a pension from the emperor and organized several profitable memorial concerts in Mozart's honor. Uh, whoever Mozart was. So, so from these efforts, uh, Constanza was able to gain some financial security for herself, and uh, a lot of this allowed her uh, to send her children to private schools, which, you know, you, like, we all know what public school be like. But, but, but Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart's death came at a young age, even for the time period. People didn't die at the age of 35 that often even then. 
unless they were you know, killed in some horrible accident. Uh, yet his meteoric rise to fame and accomplishment at a very early age is uh, reminiscent of a more contemporary musical artist, of more contemporary musical artists whose star had burned out way too soon. Uh, at the uh, time of his death, Mozart was considered one of the greatest composers of all time. Uh, I imagine second only to Emmanuel Bach. Uh, oh well, poor man. So uh, his, his music presented a bold expression, uh, oftentimes uh, complex and dissonant, and required high technical mastery from musicians who performed it. Uh, it had to be very clean. And if you've ever played on one of the old uh, piano forks that he played on, uh, you know you have to be very accurate for it not to sound horrible. So his works remained secure and popular throughout the 19th century as biographies about him were written and his music enjoyed constant performances and renditions by the musicians, by churches, by Masonic halls, um, or Masonic temples, as they properly call uh, His work influenced many composers that followed, uh, most notably Beethoven. Uh, Beethoven, of course, is a, is a, he's, a, he's a composer out of Germany that um, <laughs> wrote, um, wrote, I think, some really good country dances. I think other than that, I don't know anything either. So along with his friend Joseph Haydn, uh, or in English, Joseph Haydn, uh, Mozart uh, <laughs> conceived and perfected the grand forms of symphony, opera, string ensemble, and concerto that marked the classical period. Uh, he was uh, basically the, he is to the classical uh, period. What, J.S. Bach was to the Baroque period in terms of putting all of its pieces together in one lovely package. So, and particularly his operas display an uncanny psychological insight, uh, which is unusual for music at the time. It, it, it continues to exert a particular uh, fascination for musicians and music lovers today. And I think music lovers are in a way musicians, they play with their minds. Uh, but yeah, that's... Um, uh, so his, his music ha does have quite a fine reputation as being just clean, pretty well done stuff. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about, I want, just want to mention some difference between Haydn and Mozart's, uh, so in, in the symphonies. Uh, so Haydn, everything, uh, all the, in, in, in Haydn's music, everything that sounds regular is actually um, irregular and kind of rustic. Um, there's a lot of peasant themes in, and folk music in Haydn's music. A lot of phrases in Haydn are like three plus five, two plus five in terms of bars, uh, three bars, and then a three-bar kind of um, you know phrase plus a, a five-measure uh, phrase. And um, and Haydn had more, a lot more slow introductions than Mozart, and also longer development development sections than Mozart. Mozart is a lot more graceful, and he has a lot of chord dances. Uh, he's you know considered more refined and more regular, like you know a four plus four or a plus a bar, you know things like. A four plus four, like a regular sentence that we call in music, um, and also um, there in Mozart he has a lot of uh, stronger contrast contrast of themes, you know, like a really forceful uh, first theme and then followed by a lyrical second theme. Um, also, Mozart finales are usually in sonata form, while Haydn's are in sonata rondo. We talked about that a little bit before, but you know, uh, his, their music uh, is different in some in some ways. Um, yeah, I mean, you always have to be careful writing rustic or folk music. You'll get buried in a common grave. <laughs> uh, but, but Mozart did. Yeah. It was a lot more courtly. <laughs> yeah. So in 1788, uh, Mozart writes three master masterpieces, his, his last symphonies, uh, which are very innovative. Um, they have a very rich harmonic vocabulary, uh, a lot of thematic contracts between keys, um, and he also use, uses a lot of counterpoint. Um, and his writing for the winds is very, um, you know, idiomatic. Um, and we have, you know, to thank for that um, 
Mr. Stamets. Um, his 45th symphony called the Jupiter, um, you know, was written in, in 1821. We're going to talk about, um, we're actually going to talk more about it in a, in, in a second. But he shows respect for opera buffa, Stormundrang, which, which we talked about before, uh, also celebratory fanfares and dances. So there's a lot of combination of things in this last symphony. So Claudio Abbado said about this symphony, uh, the Jupiter symphony is one of Mozart's greatest creations. The finale has all these ideas uh, superimposed, bursting out and after the other, like fireworks. Uh, there is a pileup of musical lines, a proliferation of colors, the ingenuity if almost unimaginably, unimaginable, uh, is limitless. So that's what Claudio Abbado uh, said about this symphony. So, Mozart's biography contains such an amazing procession of experiences and achievements that it, that it reads almost like an 18th century novel. The story of these final uh, three symphonies occupies a full chapter um, of this life as novel. Uh, more than two centuries after they were written, uh, these works, the symphonies number 39 in E flat major, number 40 in G minor, and number 41 in C major, the Jupiter Symphony, continue to stand as the summit, at the summit of the symphonic repertoire. Uh, where they keep company with a small and supremely select uh, group of fellow masterpieces by the A-list of composers. So almost incredibly, um, all three were produced in the space of about nine weeks. Uh, you know, these aren't Mahler symphonies, but these are pretty substantial for classical era pieces. Yeah. Uh, in the summer of 1788, uh, this is when all this happened, he began his Symphony Number no. 39 around the beginning of June, not quite a month after uh, Don Juin. Uh, it was granted a lukewarm reception at its Vienna premiere and went on to commit, complete the succeeding symphonies on July 25th and August 10, uh, each as a very full-scale work, comprising the standard four movements of the late classical symphony. Twelve movements in nine weeks would mean that on the average Mozart expended five days and a few hours in the composition of each movement. Uh, that doesn't factor in that he was writing other pieces at the same time, giving piano lessons, tending a sick wife, telling poop jokes, enduring the death of a six-month-old daughter, uh, entertaining friends, moving to a new apartment, and pestering his fellow Freemason Michael Puchberg for financial loans. As we all know, uh, Mason's just not a good idea to just like, as a brother, say, hey, you're my brother, why don't you give me some money? Loan me some money, man! No, you can't. It's just not, not kosher, not a nice thing. <laughs> But yeah, very, very busy. busy guy. Yeah, busy guy. definitely busy. So Mozart, of course, had no idea that this would be his last symphonies. Uh, he undoubtedly uh, had every expectation of living well into the 19th century, and although that is not what happened, at least he had another three and a half years in which he might well have written for the symphonies. Uh, since he didn't, of course, uh, this work stands at the summer of his achievement in symphonic music, and in their uh, strikingly differently in stri strikingly different characters we glimpsed um, not only a drawing together of stance and development that had enriched his orchestral music to a point but also hints of what the future might have held of course i mean this last symphony is so amazing especially that last movement is so incredible that i mean if he had lived a couple more years i mean we it's almost it's unimaginable what what could have happened with his music with his music, with his composition. It's always fun to hypothesize, yeah. but we, we never know. A composer can always Rossini his way out. That's true, too. decide to get fat <laughs> and stare at the wall for the rest of his life. <laughs> so, in this symphony, in symphony number number 41, uh, Mozart seems intent on showing off his sheer brilliance as a composer. Uh, its emotional range is wide indeed, anticipating the vast, expensive canvas that would emerge in the symphonies of Beethoven. Uh, in performance, one might be struck by how this work, uh, though filled with incident, unrolls uh, with a lux luxurious stride. 
at least until its finale. Uh, certainly compared to its predecessor, the edgy, nervous Symphony No. 40 in G minor, this final symphony seems in no great hurry even when its music is moving quickly. Uh, this symphony lasts about 33 minutes um, and uh, of course, I mean, some people think of Mozart that he, that he, some people think that Mozart is the first romantic composer, but of course, I mean, that's, you know, those lines get blurry sometimes. <laughs> yeah, his music's nothing resembling romanticism. <laughs> yeah, completely different way of thinking. Mm -hmm. uh, so, the sonata form, first movement's main theme, begins with contrasting motifs. A threefold tutti outburst of a fundamental tone, respectively by an ascending motion leading up in a triplet from the dominant tone underneath to the fundamental tone, to the fundamental one, followed by a more lyrical response. Um, the exchange is heard twice and then followed by an extended series of fanfares. What follows is a transitional passage where the two contrasting motifs are expanded and developed. From there, the second theme group begins with a lyrical section in G major major, uh, which uh, ends suspended on a seventh chord and is followed by a stormy section in C minor, which is more sad than the G major. Uh, near the exposition's end, Mozart injects the last numerous, the last numerous themes to populate this movement, a light-hearted skipping tune self-borrowed from his concert aria Un bacio di mano, which of course is Italian for a kiss of the mano. Uh, the development begins with the modulation from G major to E flat major, where the insertion aria theme, uh, keep your jokes to yourself, is then uh, repeated and extensively developed. A false recapitulation then occurs where the movement's opening theme returns, but softly in an F major. The first theme group's final flourishes then are extensively developed and against a chromatic, or developed against a chromatically falling bass line followed by a restatement of the end of the insertion aria. Come on, it's too much. Uh, and then leading to C major for the recapitulation. With the exception of the usual key transpositions and some expansion of the minor key sections, the recapitulation proceeds in a regular fashion. Uh, it's, uh, it's a lot of stuff going on, especially yeah. for a, uh, a classical symphony. Yeah, yeah. classical sonata is, is complicated, definitely. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Uh, so in the slow moment, in the next moment, um, the violins are going to be using mutes, uh, yielding uh, uh, this veiled timbre. Uh, analysts have sometimes described this movement as being rooted in the Sarabande, a French courtly dance of the Baroque, um, uh, but indeed it does display that dance's ex uh, es essential attributes of 3-4 meter with a stress on the second beat, but it nonetheless seems a remote connection. Uh, whether the association was in Mozart's mind or not, he uh, develops this sonata form moment in a way that has very little to do with the Baroque. Um, the first and second moments both include passages in which the bass line descends by chromatic steps. Oh yes, it's very, very pleasant. <laughs> so in the minuetto, minuetto, uh, a descending line with related chromatic curves stakes its place at the top of the texture, and Mozart ends up developing it into a serpentine canon for woodwinds. Uh, the trio section uh, sort of fools listeners, uh, as, as musicologist Peter Brown puts it, quote, having the end of the phrase precede its beginning, unquote, sort of like uh, Peter Schickley's unbegun symphony that he was born too late to have written the first two movements for. <laughs> so that is to say the opening notes of each phrase sounds like a concluding cadence, while the notes that follow sound like they're revving up for that conclusion. Uh, sort of uh, shoot first, ask questions later, uh, basic periodic structure, whereas they themselves end up being the end. This is a joke that had recently been made by Mozart's friend Haydn. Uh, we, we might remember Haydn, uh, that's uh, Josef Haydn, he was from uh, 
uh, from that area, sort of central European composer, and his quartet in D major, opus 50, number six, nicknamed the frog. Not the part of the violin bow, but the, the animal. So it was published in October of 1787, about 10 months before Mozart wrote this symphony. So the finale is a marvel even by Mozartian standards. Uh, if the last moment of the Hafner symphony was suggestive of the abduction from the uh, from the Seraglio, um, the finale of Symphony Number no. One might remind listeners of the Marriage of Figaro, uh, in its uh, propulsive exuberance as well as the slyness which with it reveals its surprises. And Mozart begins with by stating a four-note motif that uh, composers had observed over for generations. A motif, a motif uh, doled out in simple whole notes, one per measure. Uh, and in fact, uh, he has already stated it in the trio of the Minueto, uh, where we are not likely to have paid much attention to it. Now it holds pride of place, at first on its own, then in counterpoint with itself. Um, other themes make their entrance one by one, uh, not extended melodies uh, so much as fleeting motifs, yet Mozart gives them all enough play to lend them uh, familiarity. Uh, in the movement's uh, development section, he juxtaposes several in, in counterpoint, and he works in a passage in which woodwinds intone descending chromatic lines, uh, densely harmonized, recalling uh, related contours in the first and second movements. Uh, but he withholds the most astonishing surprise until the coda, a breathtaking display of quintuple invertible counterpoint. Uh, five melodies sounding against one another, worked out uh, so any of them can fall at any pitch level within the orchestral texture. Um, it all passes quickly, leaving the listener, ama the listener amazed uh, but bereft of the possibility of pondering what is happening while it's going on. Uh, in her monograph on, the, on this symphony, Elaine uh, Sisman wrote, quote, the, the mass of simultaneous writing fragments um, all, at all rhythmic levels um, and in all instruments with the relentless background of the four notes the four whole notes uh, cannot be taken in. It reveals vistas of uh, contrapuntal infinity. The coda thus uh, creates a cognitive exhaustion born uh, of sheer magnitude. It makes vivid uh, the mathematical sublime." Unquote. So uh, that climax may be viewed as looking both backwards um, to the sort of counterpoint of vitrosity we associated with Bach um, and, and Handel, and forward to the dramatic power of fugue as demonstrated in many of the greatest compositions of Beethoven. Um, but this, I mean, this last movement is really incredible. When you look at this score, and if, and actually in in Wikipedia you have a mark a mark section there of this part of the score because it goes by really fast. But it, you know all the the counterpoint and how well it's written and how how really brilliant it is um, is is really amazing for for his this last symphony. Yeah, it's a mix of two worlds. He's sort of bringing in the yeah the, the stuff that he learned and yeah. in his composition. I mean, it's it's basically, if you've ever read um, uh, Gratis Ad Parnassum by Fuchs, uh, you, you're somewhat familiar with the, the different species of counterpoint, and he and Mozart basically goes through all of them in order, I think, in, in his uh, counterpoint. And it's just really, well, very interesting how he's able to make this learned style happen alongside uh, this Enlightenment Gallant pared down style he's so well known for. So uh, this symphony is universally known among English-speaking music lovers as the Jupiter Symphony. Uh, and as with so many musical nicknames, this one did not originate with the composer. Uh, this all has to do with the circle of friends that you have, so if you don't like the name of one of your pieces, you have to find new friends. <laughs> um, 
So uh, we have no reason to doubt that the account provided by the English composer and publisher Vincent Novello, uh, the, the man who uh, I just know Novello as being the guy that destroyed the art of uh, reading choral music from parts, mm -hmm. uh, he's the first person to print uh, vocal scores for choirs in the mid-19th century. Uh, he was an English uh, composer-publisher, Vincent Novello, who, along with his wife, visited Mozart's widow and her son Franz Xaver, in uh, 1829 and reported, quote, Mozart's son said he, he considered the finale to his father's symphony in C, which Solomon christened the Jupiter, to be the highest triumph of instrumental composition, and I agree with him, unquote. Uh, this, would be, this would have been the German violinist Johann Peter Solomon, uh, remembered especially for having established himself as an empresario in London mm -hmm. uh, and arranging Franz Josef Haydn's two stints in Great Britain late in the uh, 1790s. Mm -hmm. It rings true. The earliest uh, concert programs to use the nickname uh, were Scottish and English. Uh, and the first printed edition to slap the name on the title page was a piano transcription of the symphony published in London in 1823. Mm. So that's where we get the origin of the name Jupiter. Mm -hmm. so it wasn't called that before. Yeah. <laughs> 41 is just not quite as catchy. <laughs> so it's almost, almost the meaning of the life, universe, and everything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, although we don't know just when it was premiered, the Jupiter Symphony quickly earned a reputation as a work of exceptional, or exceptional qualities. In 1798, uh, a reviewer of Leipzig's uh, Alemanni Musikalische Zeitung referred to uh, Mozart's quote, formidable symphony in C major in which, as is well known, he came on a little too strong, unquote. But soon, commentators adopted tones of almost universal adulation. By the time uh, George Nicolaus von Nissen published his groundbreaking Mozart's biography in 1828, uh, the tone was firmly set, uh, quote, his, his great symphony in C uh, with the closing fugue is truly the first of all symphonies. Uh, in, in no work of this kind does uh, the divine spark of genius shine more brightly and beautifully, unquote. So, you know, that happens sometimes, you know, where we've talked about that a lot, where the f you know, some people don't like it, but then most people like it at the end. <laughs> yeah, Shakespeare had to go through that mm -hmm. rite of passage himself. I mean, everybody, when they write something new and interesting, you have to give it a little time to yeah. be appreciated, with the exception, of course, of the second day of new school. <laughs> God, <laughs> no one likes that no one yet. That. <laughs> <laughs> and it's been a hundred years since they started writing that. <laughs> <That's true. laughs> uh, it's still just not... You don't just whistle, you draw to pieces. I mean, it's catching on in scary movies. <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean, you hear that occasionally. It's kind of scary, but... Yeah. <laughs> All right. Is there anything else you want to say? Oh, there's one thing that... There's this, um, there's this like, you know, myth or anecdote that I've heard about Mozart uh, where, uh, you know, Leopold... Mozart was a kind of a lazy kid, so he wouldn't get out of bed. So Leopold would come in the room, he would play, you know, like all this, like a melody that he would improvise, and then he would, you know, uh, play a series of chords. You know, the melody with this series of chords, like one, four, five, and then he would leave the room. So Mozart, being, you know, the musician that he was, he would, you know, get out of bed and go to the piano and play the, you know, tonic. Um, so that's an, one of those stories that I've heard about Mozart, you know, being a, a lazy kid and that's how Leopold would get him out of bed. <laughs> that's, a, that's a nice little story. <laughs> Mind for it. We, we don't doubt anything that Mozart did as a child. I mean, we assume that he lived a full adult life before he was 10. <laughs> uh, which is, you know, fair because he died at 35. 
Yeah. It's all good. But of course, I mean, he is one of the most famous composers of all time. I mean, pretty much everybody knows who he is. I mean, along with the next composer we're going to talk about, Beethoven. I mean, they, everybody knows who Beethoven and Mozart are, even if you really don't know anything about music. People know those names. If anything, people know Beethoven as the St. Bernard dog that was in the movie from, movies from the 90s. That's right. They know the name. At least, at least they know the name Beethoven. <laughs> I mean, they may not, might not know when he lived or what he did. Yeah. I mean, when I was a kid, I thought Picasso was an ancient person. I <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah no one ever thinks about these things. That's true, that's true. And he was 20th <laughs> century, you know. That's crazy. Well, <laughs> just when you were a kid, you just go, artist, okay. Yeah, that's a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> Beethoven, he's a composer. Got it. <laughs> He's a decomposing composer. <laughs> All right. Anything else you want to say about this today? I have nothing. All right. <laughs> uh, well, thank you again for <laughs> listening to another episode of the Symphony Podcast. Um, next time we're going to be talking about Beethoven. That's the next, the next, uh, you know, uh, figure that we have to talk in this uh, line of, of composers of the, you know, the three, the three major composers that that we started talking about. Uh, you know, two, a couple epi- episodes ago. That's right. Major composers. That's Mozart, Beethoven, and Charles Valentin Alcon. <laughs> no one ever expects the third one, but he's totally the best. <laughs> hey, he's not the best. He's pretty, he's pretty cool. <laughs> In any case, yeah. All right. Well, you can, of course, uh, email us at symphonypodcast.gmail.com. You can find us on iTunes. You can find us on YouTube. Um, and until next time, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. The deed is done, Bernardo.